Go. Woo, okay. All right. Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 107, Implosion. I just have a quick announcement before we get started, which is that we are preparing some bonus content for you guys. And to do that, we want to solicit two kind of things. First is just mailbag. So we've already received several emails. Um, and definitely we interact with you guys on Twitter and, and the forums and stuff. But if you specifically want to reach out to us uh, to read your email on air or respond to your ideas, absolutely send us an email at warehouse13pod at gmail.com. That's warehouse13pod at gmail. Um, and we also have a specific request for any stories about how Warehouse 13 might have changed or impacted your life. Again, the email is a great way to make sure that we see that and are able to share it with uh, the bonus content. But also, if you would like to have your voice featured on the show, you can leave a voice recording. Um, so just use your cell phone or whatever software you have. You don't have to do anything fancy to record and then send to our email address that we just gave. So we really hope you guys will do that because it's going to be super fun to do those bonuses. That's it. And here's this week's summary. Pete and Micah return to DC to snag, bag, and tag a sword before it can harm the president. While Pete and Micah reckon with how their lives as warehouse agents cause them to clash with old allies, Artie must confront his painful past. And Micah clashes with Artie over his secretive nature. Excellent. Thank you so much. So this week's Writer's Appreciation Corner focuses on writer Bob Goodman, who wrote this episode. He is a really great writer who has worked on a lot of shows. Uh, this appears to be his first live-action credit. He comes from a very comic booky animated world, which is not a bad thing at all. He's worked on Justice League, a bunch of Batman shows, uh, the Superman animated show, The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest, Ben 10. So he has a, a big background in writing, but this appears to be his first credit in live action television, and he does such a good job. And he current, he worked on this show all the way until 2014. Um, so we know that I love to see writers stick around for a long time because it gives a show a really consistent voice when uh, writers don't cycle in and out of a show. It helps make sure that the show always feels like the show. And after this, he went on to work on Elementary on CBS, where he still works. Yeah. But I do want to give a shout out to him as a writer to watch because he is incredible incredibly important to Warehouse 13. He has written so many fan favorite episodes and I won't spoil what happens in them but I will say episodes that he is responsible for. Um, He wrote obviously Implosion but some of his other really powerful episodes include one of my personal favorites 321. Shadows he wrote Endless Wonder and he wrote Instinct. He has a total of eight written by credits for this series, but he is responsible for some of the episodes that shape some of the most iconic moments that we have. And when we think back to the look and feel of the series, we think of his moments, which 
that's not something that every writer on every show can say. A lot of those moments on a lot of shows tend to go to the showrunners. So it says a lot that he was really able to really take ownership of some of those. And I'm really pleased. Yeah. I didn't know about his more comic book or animated background, but it's really a great skill set to bring to this show that has that science fiction playfulness to it. And then the other shout out I want to give to Bob Goodman is that in our podcast season one trailer, there is a quote read by friend of the show, Brian Alderson, uh, which is written by Bob Goodman. So we'll link in the show notes and it's linked in the the trailer as well, that Bob Goodman wrote a think piece for io9 about what he, as a writer of Warehouse 13, thinks that Warehouse 13 was symbolizing and accomplishing. And it's so thoughtful. And he clearly has a vision of this show's cultural significance in the moment in 2009 through 2013 that it came out. So I just wanted to point that out. So shall we jump into the episode? Let's jump in. All right, so we begin with an establishing shot on the warehouse, (laughs) and inside, Pete is imitating sort of like a dubbed Japanese movie. Um, He's playing with a sword and sort of doing that dub joke of the, you know, the voice is not being quite on. Um, And as he's playing and whipping it around, Micah comes in and says, is there anything you don't play with? And he actually considers it and says no, which I thought was great. Yeah. Yeah. He's so honest. He's like, mm, no. <laughs> so he's honest about it, and then he kind of puts it down and leans on it. When Artie rushes in, like, no, no, don't do that. We learn that it's a replica of a real old sword that Artie may or may not have used an artifact to recreate. And I don't think he recreated it just for this episode. I think Artie has a thing for swords. Uh, (laughs) I'm just throwing that out there. And the real one was found at a dig in Okinawa. And Artie wants Pete and Micah to go to D.C. to find it because it's going to be given to the president and Artie believes that it is likely an artifact. Yes. And so some of the important information we get is that this is a copy that Artie has made of the finest samurai sword ever made, which is called the Hanjo Masamune, and uh, that it, like Jill said, was uncovered a few weeks prior to the time of this episode. So we usually wait a while to talk uh, with our expert, but we know what the artifact is immediately. And so I would just like to go ahead and have our expert for this week tell you what the Hanjo Masamune is because it is, in fact, a real and actually lost historical artifact. So our scholar for this week is Dr. Nairi Bakalian. She is an Armenian-American queer woman who is proud to have called the American and Japanese Northeast her home. She has produced nonfiction, fiction, and photography content for more than a dozen publications, including two newspapers and five anthologies. You can say hi to her on Twitter and Facebook at Riverside Wings, or check out her cutting-edge work at shiogamawaves.com. That's S-H-I-O-G-A-M-A waves.com. So it was excellent to talk to her, and we're going to get that clip now. As a real sword, this is a blade that gets its name because it was once owned by Honjo Shigenaga, 
who was a 16th century vassal of the house of Uesugi, which was this especially blue-blooded old samurai clan in the north. Um, it's this uh, uh, especially beautiful, especially well-made sword that saw use in battle and didn't just survive, but survived in outstanding and still arguably battle-ready shape. And there are diagrams of it made by sword appraisers that you can find online. I've, I've passed along one to you, and I can get your, your, your listeners can, I'm sure, find other ones uh, relatively easily. Um, so the House of Uesugi survived. It was one of the competitors to the House of Tokugawa, which became the shogunate. Um, interestingly enough, the current heir apparent is apparently an aerospace engineer. Um, <laughs> but um, the Uesugi were on the losing side of the fight that brought the House of Tokugawa to power and clinched the title of shogun for their lord, Tokugawa Ieyasu, in 1603. So the Uesugi lost a lot of their lands, a lot of their resources, a lot of their treasures, and they had to basically drop a whole lot of uh, of the goods, the, the sort of the, the more um, the, the articles of you, you could say conspicuous consumption, the you know the fine tea goods and the fancy hereditary armor and and the swords and so on that they didn't need, um, in the interest of you know. Uh, getting as much money as they could to invest and sort of pool into their significantly reduced territory. Now, they still had a decently sized fiefdom in the Northeast, but it was far, far less than what they once held. So that's how it this sword passed through, I think, three or four different hands before it wound up in the hands of the Tokugawa family and became an heirloom of the shogunal line. Um, and it was in the possession of the House of Tokugawa until 1945. It was handed over when pretty much everybody was handing over their swords. It was handed over to the local police. This would have been in Tokyo somewhere where the Tokugawa uh, uh, family lived at the time. Um, you know, they were they were part of the old peerage and they had a very nice estate. So their, the, the family head, a man named Tokugawa Yamasa, uh, took this, took the Honjo Masamune and a number of other swords to the local police station, where an American soldier, whose name we don't exactly know, um, it, it, the records say Coldy Beemore, C O L D Y B I M O R E, uh, came and took the sword and several others, and it vanishes there. It would be fairly straightforward to track down the man's whereabouts and find him, but per my research, the Department of Defense records that would tell us that all burned down in an archive fire, I think in St. Louis, in the 1970s. So oh, no. the blades out there, maybe. And sometimes I remember it's there along with God knows how many other ones, and I just shudder a little. For all I know, it's like some yard sale in Weehawken or something. Okay. Um, you know, I, I had a little bit of first-hand experience with this because when I was employed at the University of Pittsburgh, we got a phone call one day from an elderly gentleman who said that his his wife's mother had brought back a samurai sword from Japan, and and he had stripped the stripped it to the tang, and he wanted a dictionary to translate the characters on the tang. And I tried to explain to him that you don't translate proper nouns, like this would be a sword maker's name. Could you please send me photos? Could you please you know, uh, uh, could we collaborate and I could come and appraise it for you? And he said, no, 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 no. And I just, I grit my teeth when I remember that sometimes. So that should give you an idea of one of the worst case scenarios of where it might be today. Um, 
Now, I'm not aware of any legends about this sort personally. That doesn't mean there aren't any. I, I am just less aware. I'm, I'm not familiar with this. But in my opinion, if you think in a general sense, it's kind of turned into one. A magnificently made sword, the work of a legendary smith, survived battle after battle, became a treasure of the rulers of Japan, and then vanished into thin air at the beginning of the American occupation. Where is it? Who has it? What happened to it? Where on earth might we expect to find it? I mean, I think that's, I think in its own right, that's, that's kind of, that, that's, that's a sort of, of legendary status uh, of its own. Yes, and I didn't know while I was watching this that it was a real sword, and I never would have known if we didn't have an expert to, like, illuminate this for us. Absolutely. Um, what I have next is Artie gives Pete the fake sword to swap with the real one, to which I said in my notes, lol, good luck with airport security. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like law enforcement must have special privileges because you're right. Like a giant samurai <laughs> sword, get on the plane, have fun. Now, me and Jill had differing points of view on this because I feel that if the sword was found in Okinawa and they're presenting it to the president, it's like the Japanese are giving it to the Americans. Is that what you thought was happening or is that not what's happening? That's what I thought was happening for sure. Um, I just got the timeline mixed up in my head. At first, I thought it was originally meant to be given at an earlier point in time before World War II. I still kind of think it is because I think that's part of how they got the Suba is because they gave them, he was like, oh, we're going to give this to you as a symbol of peace, which is how the Suba wound up in the Museum of Peace, the Woodrow Wilson Museum of Peace later. But then, you know, things fall apart in the way that they do. Oh, I see. So this is um, the end of the scene. Artie hands off the Masamune and says he's swapping it out for an Artie Nielsen. And interestingly, Pete, kind of continuing his movie bit, thanks Artie in Japanese, and Artie replies in German. <laughs> so this is weird. And a little, a little bit of a hint at the World War II-ness that we are going to get in this episode. Yes. And then we move to a Chiron that announces that we're in D.C. And we are in a place called Kluger Electronics, where a man in black with an obscured face enters the electronics building and talks with Kluger. Kluger shows the man a suitcase full of what I call mystery canisters. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes. Um, the mystery man takes out the mystery gadget, and then he just kills Kluger. Yeah. Um, we kind of get an external shot, and that just allows us to see that Kluger is getting zapped by something terrible and probably green. <laughs> um, that's what we know. We see this this flickering, horrible light, and, you know, it's... It's lights out for Kluger. So that's cutting us to the Japanese embassy where Pete and Micah have arrived on their mission. And they're having a really interesting discussion, which is important to the, the themes of the relationships in this episode, where they don't know what the artifact does or how dangerous it is. Um, it's like Artie is keeping information from them. And Micah is really annoyed and put off by that 
And Pete is very trusting about it. Yes. Micah is used to having more information. She likes to be informed. She likes to go into situations prepared. And she doesn't like being made to feel like she isn't allowed to fully prepare. And Pete is just like, hey, man, this is our job. We accepted that we won't know everything all the time. This is a weird job that we've chosen to take on. And, you know, Artie cares about us, right? So he'd tell us if anything was super seriously wrong. And Micah's just not so sure. And I think it's valid both ways because it's just that personality difference where Pete is willing to fly by the seat of his pants, but Micah's mode of operation is that she prepares herself and informs herself and, like, goes in by the book with, like, preparations. So um, we understand where both of them are coming from. And that's just the moment when a light shines out from underneath a door that they're walking past. And there's a pretty good special effect that starts to suck Pete and Micah towards the door and the camera work kind of shifts around. It's cool because then we get, like, a pan around of the embassy and, like, papers have flown and people are passed out. And we see that some whammy has taken place of everybody inside. People are on the ground. And Pete... Pete stirs a little bit and sees someone stepping over him, but he can't quite make out who it is. Um, And then we just cut to the opening credits. Yeah. Um, From there, we cut back into the show. The authorities are obviously dealing with a crisis so there's you know police and ambulances and stuff and Pete and Micah are on the Farnsworth letting Artie know what has happened but there's not a lot to explain because no one really understands what has happened and Pete and Micah are not allowed near the room they were trying to get to they can't access the artifact so Micah is annoyed that they're being treated like suspects and they're telling Artie, that what they experienced felt like an explosion, but none of the evidence suggests an explosion. There's no bodies, there was no outward destruction of anything, and they don't really know how to make sense of that. And so mysterious music begins to play as Artie seems to comprehend what's going on, but just like they were talking about, he doesn't tell Pete and Micah what he's figured out. He just instructs them, like, you've got to go in the room, you've got to tell me exactly what you see, and, you know, there's an obvious hint that he's got a clue, but he's not sharing anything. Yeah, and Lena is standing behind Artie while this is all going on, and she's clearly sensing Micah's frustration. And there's just not time for Lena to interject and help the situation, but you can tell she wants to. Because, I mean, going back to something Micah said earlier, and I'm paraphrasing, she said, it was so important that we had to leave right now to go take care of this, but it wasn't important enough that he could tell us anything about what we're doing and why. And I feel like it's the same situation, and, like, every every single choice Artie makes in this episode from this point forward worsens that relationship with Micah. Yes. And Lena does not have the ability to interject on the phone with Micah, but she does confront Artie about his, like, serious look on his face because she says, and this is exactly what she says, that it's the past rearing its ugly head. So she knows the look on his aura or whatever it is that she can, you know, view with her powers, and she's like, you know, uh, the sword wasn't responsible for this, 
and Artie's like, well, I really hope that I'm wrong about what I think is happening, suggesting to us that whatever is happening is really, really bad. But also, he's not going to share it. No. And Micah is just trying to get some sort of information. They do, in the course of this conversation, reveal that nobody is even sure if the sword was taken because no one's looking for it because something else ostensibly is going on. But Pete and Micah don't know what it is because they can't get in far enough. But Artie seems to think it doesn't make sense that anybody would think anything is more important than this sword, um, which really alarms him. And so Micah says, Artie, did the sword do this? And he is like, no. Like, I mean, not very straightforward, but he says, no, but get in the room and tell me what you see. So he has an idea of what did it. He's not telling them what did it, but the thing that did it isn't even the thing that they were sent there to do. Yeah, and he's not giving Which is information about that either. It's like, oh, there's another thing to be worried about, and he's not going to tell you what that is. So, meanwhile, Pete and Micah's frustration grows because the, uh, like, Japanese embassy security person, uh, Mr. Ogawa, comes out, and they're like, finally, we're going to get to ask what's going on and kind of get some access, and Mr. Ogawa reveals that the Secret Service has already sent a team to inspect the gift, and it's kind of piqued his interest that they have two different teams. And they turn around, and there he is. It's Daniel Dickinson from the pilot and the first episode. He has returned. I like him so much. I like him so much. He's so likable. So yeah, he's a great character, and I I enjoy seeing him again. And it's interesting because it's such a different vibe than Resonance, which was episode 102, where Micah liked being in the warehouse, but she and Pete were still kind of buddy-buddy with Dickinson, and they liked seeing him, and there was a playful banter, and it was like, oh yeah, we're switching from this sci-fi show back to this cop drama, and now it's like, we no longer belong in this cop drama. And you can see on Micah's face when she sees Dickinson, she's upset. She feels like she let, like, someone down. Yeah. We go from there to the Secret Service headquarters, where Dickinson and Pete and Micah are all talking, and Dickinson is mad that they didn't give him any heads up that they were going to be here. And, you know, Micah says, well, Artie gave us instructions not to be in touch with you. And that clearly is hard, because Pete is like, well, we can have coffee, and I'm sure they're not supposed to, but I think the idea is that their new security clearance and their new super top secret job means that Like Jill said, you can't be a part of the cop world anymore because it's just not even translatable with the old job and the old people that you used to work with. Which is sad. And Pete tries to play it off like kind of a breakup. And Micah's like, don't. This is serious. Like, he was our boss. Be respectful. Was what's going on in her eyes. And then Dickinson says something really nice, though. He understands where they're coming from because they're just doing their jobs. And he's like, I know this wasn't your screw-up. It was that arty guy. And this is important because Dickinson has met and hung out with Artie. Like, in episode 102, we saw that. And they have a sort of camaraderie. But also, it's clear when you just look at Dickinson, who is like, a rule-following guy in his nice suit 
with like a very like legible agency. He works for the Secret Service. He has a job that even if it's secret, like people understand what his job is. But Artie is, as we've said, the kind of disheveled guy, a sort of scatterbrained guy. He wears these like earth tones that never go out of <laughs> style and his hair's messy and his eyebrows are bushy and like so Dickinson knows that Artie is a real guy in the law enforcement world but he also I think is questioning like how this Artie guy who is the weirdo under the desk like doing this crazy computer thing the last time they met is so much more involved in like a mega top secret thing and is like not doing a good job in Dickinson's terms, I'm using air quotes, like managing his people and letting them know what's going on and like giving the appropriate agencies the appropriate like intel because if you're in organized law enforcement, this is a pretty big screw up. Yeah, and also just because he had a camaraderie with Artie isn't going to negate the time that he has spent with these two people who he knows really well and he knows that even though Pete is the way Pete is, he and Micah both are very professional at their jobs, and they are not likely to do the kind of thing that he knows he can probably ascribe to Artie. Definitely. And what Dickinson tells them that's really important is that Mr. Ogawa is waiting for an explanation, but obviously Pete and Micah can't offer that, and all that Dickinson can really do is be like, well, you you better just get out of D.C. We don't want you getting in trouble. Um, and here's the thing. Pete and Micah agree so fast. They're like, yep, we're out of here. That we know. And, like, Dickinson had to know. But he, he gives them the benefit of the doubt. But they get up and they're like, okay, peace out. But they're definitely not giving up. And I also think, like, that was something that they could not lie about was like not tell the truth about but they're like just get on a plane and they're like yeah we'll get out of here as soon as possible and then leave because that way they're not lying they're just like we don't know how soon that will be but we also don't want to be doing this anymore so we're all on that we're all agreed there right and exactly on cue we kind of move to a nighttime scene where pete and micah are on a stakeout and i just like the way they look like they're in the parking lot doing a stakeout sort of thing um, they're outside of the embassy, and again, they're about to have a heart-to-heart, -heart, and they do begin it where Micah said that she felt like coming home would be, you know, coming home, be a homecoming, be something more positive, but it doesn't feel how they thought it would to be back in D.C. And that's sort of what I talked about a bit in the summary, which is they have to deal with now not just the fact that they're doing a different job, but that it may not have been a super long time that they've been at the warehouse, but it has changed who they are fundamentally as people, which is why they can't fit back in. They're just about to get into their heart to heart when Artie appears. <laughs> and they freak out and yell at him, which I love. I love that Pete just keeps going, not cool, Artie, not cool. <laughs> and and yeah, it's funny when Pete does it, but you can also see the mounting level of frustration in Micah yes like oh man he didn't even tell us that he was coming right now to us here like why can't he tell us anything 
And he says, the exact moment when he comes in is, she says, I thought this would be like old homecoming week. And he appears and goes, home is overrated. Oh, Artie. And just jumps in. And it's there's just so much to unpack there that I don't even know if we can get into it. But, I mean, I think that also bothers Micah. Because she's really starting to feel like the warehouse is her home now. And if home is overrated, it's like, you need to treat us like we matter and you want us around. And that's the building tension throughout this is that Micah doesn't feel thoroughly and appropriately informed as a um, well-respected colleague should be. Yeah, and like she has a line where she expresses it very well later, so I'll get to it then. Uh, But what I love about the kind of comedy of the moment is that It's just funny to me that it seems like they both have very different means to the same end. Like, they have the same goal, but their their plans were going to be pretty different. I didn't get the vibe that the plans were different. I think that he was just picking a different starting point. Sure. It might have been that, because they do... Then Pete says, yeah, we're going to crawl in our bellies, which mimics but they have to get in first so he was starting with how they get in and she was just saying so our plan is we're gonna go through here and crawl on our bellies and like do that and i do i love pete's whole thing where he says the plan very articulately and then just turns to micah and goes what do you mean for once i didn't even notice that but it's really good you didn't know oh my god it was one of my favorite parts because my favorite jokes are in the seconds right after this Um, in this same sort of scene. So Artie gives them some big goggles to wear. Yes. uh, Okay, so Pete has such a tiny, tiny beat to say this, but he starts doing an impression of Kermit the Frog with his goggles on, and it is an amazing impression. He's like, I'm a little bit like Kermit the Frog, but he does it in the best Kermit impression that, like, Eddie McClintock did amazingly. I didn't even notice that. I picked up a different line that he said. Oh man, you need to go back. If you didn't notice it, I notice it every time. Oh my god, I'll have to look that up. What I heard was, while Artie was doing something we'll address in a second, I just hear Pete in the background go, yeah, Micah, those really bring out your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, they totally cover her eyes. It is a really funny joke when he says that. And meanwhile, the reason they have the goggles is because Artie has pulled out a 14th century Chinese firework, and he's explaining that this is going to sort of mesmerize everybody around the Japanese embassy security. Specifically, he says it triggers a feedback loop in the optic nerve that they just sort of keep seeing the same thing over and over, and it it does mesmerize them, but that's how he says it works. Like, I mean, it's more specific instead of when we talked about mesmerism before when it was kind of mystical and unexplainable and dealt more with animal magnetism, which isn't really a real thing. Yeah, so this is more science fiction-y than fantasy. Yes, but he also says, don't tell Mrs. Frederick I did this, like really seriously, which is alarming because we know how scary Mrs. Frederick can be. But we also know that we haven't even scratched the surface of it, and Artie has. So if we go into this episode knowing what we know, that there's going to be a moment where Pete and Micah have to possibly believe that Artie is a traitor, you could view this of, like, don't tell Mrs. Frederick, like, 
already showing up illicitly and like breaking the rules, like you know the way that Micah processes information is to kind of flash back through the events and like remember what has occurred. And so the reason I think Micah believes it for a while um, that Artie's a traitor is because she plays back these things like, oh, don't tell Mrs. Frederick. Oh, we've got to do break these rules. So his actions are not very wise or rule following throughout this first whole part of the episode. Yeah. And this is a type of job that thrives on relationships and partnerships. It's something that requires teamwork and he's refusing to share with a team which is inherently suspicious exactly so pete gets to make two more funny jokes as they are using the feedback looped artifact to get into the embassy so he goes up to a random person and goes booga booga (laughs) yes i do think there's value in it though like i think a lot of the times when pete does something silly he's doing it for a reason not just for his own pleasure i think he is waiting to see does proximity affect this is this something that if someone walks by they will be shocked out of yes because that's important because that will calculate how they move through the space sure so after seeing that it does work he just goes freaky mcfreakerson (laughs) um so anyway so they go into the room that they weren't allowed in before Stuff looks real weird in there. And Micah sees the damage and immediately says, was this some kind of reverse chemical reaction? And Artie says, yes. Like, that's the most clear interaction that we've had between Artie and Micah. Then with a little more pressing, he does elaborate and says, this was made by an implosion grenade, which removes matter from the center of a space and pulls everything towards it. So validating what Pete and Micah had experienced and sort of explaining what had happened. And Micah immediately says, well, that's why they couldn't find the sword. It could be in the rubble. And Artie says, no, 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 no. Whoever did this did it so they could get the sword. And this is a distraction from it. But it does explain intellectually why the people who were treating Pete and Micah like suspects and not letting them in the room also weren't looking for the sword. They would have made that same assumption that whatever was in the room got pulled in so no one would be looking for it. Sure. And the other important thing is that they see in the rubble like a deformed hand or arm, like someone had died. And so they point out that whoever did this has no problem killing people. And Artie agrees with that. Then, two, But two other things happened before then that are really important. Artie says, I collected all these grenades years ago, which you can see on Micah's face is another ratchet up on that tension of, you knew these existed, you knew this is what they could probably be, it would have taken you two seconds to have shared this with us over the Farnsworth. We could have been in the wrong place at the wrong time and someone could have used one of those on us. You have to share these things. Pete doesn't really care that much and my personal opinion as to why is that not to get all morbid but they are secret service agents their job is to take a bullet for the president if need be i think pete might have made more peace with his mortality yeah i think pete is just resigned to the fact that he's likely to go out on the job whereas micah is like i might go out on the job but it's going to be doing something heroic it's not going to be because i don't have the information right he says whoever stole the sword they also have a grenade that means they have other stuff 
that belongs in the warehouse, which makes them our competition. Yes. And this is something that Artie kind of validates, but also clearly knows more about than he tells them. So from there, we go to a hotel where there's sort of like a voiceover of like, next time don't get the suite, which I just found kind of funny. Um, Yeah. But they're in a hotel and things are serious where Artie is trying to track down the grenades using a phone book because he doesn't want to be tracked. He wants to make sure that he can find the place he's looking for without anyone knowing what they're doing. And in this process, Pete and Micah insist on learning more about the Hanjo Masamune, which luckily we can take the opportunity to learn more about. So it was forged by a swordsmith named Goro Nudo Masamune, And I think this would be a great moment to introduce another clip from our artifact expert. So he was a sword maker in um, Tagami province in the late uh, 13th to early 14th century. We're not exactly sure what his exact dates are. The Nudo that appears in some renditions of his name is not so much part of his name as it is something that denotes that he became a Buddhist priest along the way. Nudo two characters means entering the way. Um, he's also known as Okazaki Masamune or Okazaki Goro uh, Nudo. Um, Sagami is uh, what's now central and western Kanagawa prefecture in modern Japan. So it's on the Sea of Japan coast. So if you're taking the bullet train from Tokyo westward to um, Nagoya and Kyoto and points west, um, you pass through there. So if you can picture sort of the foothills of Mount Fuji, that's roughly where that is. He's regarded by many as one of the most prominent Japanese sword makers. Um, I should add uh, that I I note frequent um, conflation between Goro Nudo Masamune, the sword maker, and Date Masamune, the feudal lord, the famous one-eyed feudal lord of northeastern Japan. Of all people you could have found, I wrote my dissertation on the history of Date Masamune's clan in the 19th century Japanese Civil War of 1868, which is a whole other question having very, you know, less to do with swords and actually more to do with American Civil War surplus repeating rifles, but that's a story for another day. Essentially, I, I bring that up because the, the conflation is understandable. The name Masamune in both cases is written almost the same. It sounds exactly the same. It's only one character different. Um, but we're talking about one man who lived late to 13th or to early 14th century and one man who lived mid-16th to early 17th century. So different man, different part of Japan, different time. Micah specifically insists, and she asks him multiple times, Artie, what does this sword do? And then he goes into this history of the sword, which we'll get into, and he just talks about that a lot. And she goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, but Artie, what does this sword do? And finally, he explains that it was forged so perfectly that it essentially can split light itself in half, which will create a barrier around you, which Michael goes, oh, so it makes you invisible. And he goes, no, well, yeah. <laughs> and then Pete is like, I knew it was possible because we know Pete's sort of more playful side and his kind of sometimes being a little bit nerdy about the artifacts. He's excited for the concept of invisibility, but obviously invisibility is a huge weapon. 
Yes. And very scary. So one thing that we we glossed over that's important to point out, Pete kind of bolsters Micah's argument that they need more information because in his exact quote words, you don't drop an atomic bomb to steal a butter knife. And I find this extremely questionable as a line because um, I have some clips that we'll play here about the World War II legacy of the Hanjo Masamune. So part of what the American occupation aimed to do, especially very early on, was total demilitarization of Japan. You know, the United States having just defeated Japan at that point, because this happened in December, I think December of 1945. So the Americans have only been there since August. And um, at this point, you know, eventually there was a relaxing of these, of these, of these uh, restrictions, but very, very early on at that point, the objective was just to totally disarm Japan. And obviously that means, okay, the military has to surrender, you know, they, you know, the soldiers have to turn in their rifles, the Navy has to turn in their ships. But it also means that these, these, these families, especially these elite families like the House of Tokugawa, who have these family heirloom swords, bows and arrows, spears, suits of armor, uh, less for the armor, but still, I, I believe in some cases. Um, but Anything war-related at all, they have to turn in, and they have to hand over to the America to first to the local Japanese police, and then the Japanese police are supposed to hand them over to the American occupation forces. And so these GIs, these American soldiers, would round these things up and hand them over to to their their, their superiors, and from there they would often uh, get taken away as. Uh, uh, spoils of war. And so, as I recall, there was an effort in the 60s and 70s, um, beginning in the 60s and 70s, um, and to, to some extent, I think, still continuing to repatriate some of these weapons, you know, from wherever they wound up in the United States. Um, because some of these, the Honjo Masamune included, uh, were what's called kokuho, um, national treasures. They were They had a designated status as tangible cultural heritage of of Japan and yes they're weapons but negative associations due to the due to the war notwithstanding they're also works of art so for the most part only warriors were allowed to wear a full length sword like the Honjo Masamune and swords could be made presented offered to temples and shrines and more they had a broad range of political hierarchical and ritual functions I'm glad that some of these things have been repatriated, but sadly others have not. So yeah, I think my question about this is that it sounds like Pete is just making a joke, but because World War II actually used atomic bombs, it's like not a funny joke. When he says you don't drop an atomic bomb to steal a butter knife... I think he was extrapolating based on the implosion grenade. Yes, so th so that's the thing is that he's he's comparing the implosion grenade to an atomic bomb, but that's like it's it's too big a difference of scale to be an apt comparison. I think. I think he was my opinion personally was that he was being hyperbolic and maybe an insensitive way, but I don't think he was making a joke. I think he was saying, you know, people died, and I think he is a person who is prone to dealing with things with humor, so he made it much more hyperbolic than necessary. So are you saying that this is Pete's way of dealing with... Heavy things. <laughs> Thank you so much.
I think he was saying, listen, there was a twisted human corpse in that rubble that we just looked at. You don't do that to steal just any sword. True. I guess you're right. Or you don't do that just because you collect samurai swords. It's obviously something really powerful. We're going to keep talking a little more about that history as we go through. But there is some interesting truths and uh, art department choices in this scene. So there is a specific method of, at least I don't, I'm not an expert in swords of any kind, but I do like to research various things about cooking and food history. And one of the things, one of the many things that makes European knives different from Japanese knives is that Artie is right. It is about making lots of very thin layers of steel on top of each other to make them very sharp and very sturdy, whereas European stuff is forged out of, like, a single, like, thick thing of metal, um, which I thought was an interesting thing for them to include. Yes, that's that's a really good point. And then this is something, gosh, we don't have time to get into all of it right now, so I won't, but... As Artie is showing them the history, he pulls out a Japanese hand scroll, which is a really beautiful, actual, real thing that is unique to Japan in the way that it portrays scenes and histories. And there's actually a really amazing lecture series from Sundays at the Met that you can find online that I will link in the show notes that goes into more detail about how uh, Japanese hand scrolls preserve histories and fictional stories in Japanese culture. That's amazing. The other thing that's super important is that Micah is on her A-game as Artie pulls through these different sources showing images of the the sword because she says, oh, look, you know, there's this sort of oval thing on the bottom and the dig site was missing this little thing, but then this other image shows that it has this uh, which already identifies as a suba. And we can talk about that in a minute, but I do want to talk about Micah. Okay. Not that she's not always really smart and helpful, but I think she's really more than normal displaying that when you give her any information, she can provide really valuable insight and context and additions to that information like the second he gives her anything she immediately goes okay well then I've noticed this she grew up in a bookstore she speaks every language she's read every book he needs to trust her that if he says something to her that she can actually use that information she's really trying to demonstrate how powerful she can be when she has all the right tools I think I didn't notice that but it's so important. So, yes, she identifies the part about the suba. I did look up subas in relation to this because I have so little knowledge about swords. It's frankly astounding. <laughs> I just have no knowledge. Um, if any of your listeners are familiar with uh, modern military weapons, like a modern uh, assault rifle used by, the, say, the U.S. Army, and how its bits and, bits and pieces can be customized with attachment rails or by swapping portions. There's a similar, there's a, there's a similar situation going on with the Japanese sword. The blade, just the blade with its tang, is just one component. Um, tsuba are another component. And 
you know, the, the, the handle, the wrapping, the pins, the, the little bits of like the, the end cap on the scabbard, the, the even little, little utility knives. There's, there's all these, there's all these little bits and pieces that go into making a the complete Japanese sword. So Tsuba, the sword guards, the round, usually round sword guards, are a standard component of most swords of wakigashi, so short swords or longer. So Honjo Masamune had a tuba. They're a sword guard meant to protect the hand from getting cut during close-in fighting, and I've, I've, I've trained a little bit in, in, with the Japanese sword years and years ago now, and it really does come in handy. Hmm. Um, so while they're, while they're functional, on a blade like this, they're also works of art on their own. They can be inlaid with gold or silver. You know, they can have very intricate designs that sort of fit the theme of other little bits of little bits of art that are uh, incorporated into the scabbard and all the, all those other little bits. And you know, the same thing goes for pretty much all of the other parts of what we might call blade furniture. The you know, like I said, the end of the, the cap on the end of the scabbard. Um, there's even little utility knives that on some swords can tuck through the little half-moon-shaped holes on either side of a tuba and fit into little custom-made uh, receptacles on either side of the scabbard. There's there's any number of different permutations this can take, and the tuba is just one of them. Um, and there were, of course, uh, makers of tuba, just as there were makers of swords. Sometimes makers of swords also make tuba. And, you know, there I, I've, I've seen examples of them at uh, museums uh, a number of times. So they're, they're out there. So everything I learned was new to me, but subas can be really beautiful and ornate, but they, I guess, are typically heavy metal. So if you're swinging this, you know, sword around, it's useful to have a weight. Just like if you're cutting with a really big butcher's knife, you know, it's better that the handle has some weight to it instead of one of the cheap plastic ones because it makes your movements more precise. Uh, moving on, they uh, decide that Artie is going to go after those grenades. Well, he realizes something when he looks at the he looks at an ad in a newspaper and he sees Kluger Electronics, which is the place we saw in the beginning. And he says, "Well, he doesn't say anything. He just has that look Artie gets and starts to leave." And Mike is like, okay, where are you going now? Because she just demonstrated how useful information is to her and how she can be better with it. And he just leaves. And she says, where are you going? And he says, somebody is making new grenades who promise not to. And then he just leaves. And she's like, and again, he says nothing. For some reason, I had understood that Artie was going after the grenades while Pete and Micah were going after the Suba. Artie sort of decides that, but not clearly communicated. Artie's like, you just keep looking for the sword. And he's like, someone's making new grenades and I'm going to solve this mystery. But he's not making it clear how these two are related other than the fact that they've all come to the conclusion that whoever has one has the other. This makes so much sense moving to our next scene, if you're ready to do that. Because I, I didn't understand why Pete does what he does but basically the next scene is pete and micah they're still in the hotel room and they're researching micah seems to be typing on the computer doing some some research there and i'm going to point out two sort of fashion moments they're both in this episode relating to micah wearing sort of men's style clothes 
So she often wears the sort of like men's style button down shirt, but she's a little disheveled in her men's style shirt and she just looks like she's clearly flustered and upset, but she just looks really cute on her computer with her men's shirt. So I like that. And while they're doing this, Pete, and this is what I was talking about with Jillian, uh, calls the warehouse. <laughs> and it's funny because he plays it off as like, I'm going to be better than Micah by figuring it out. But I think that that's using humor to mask the fact that he just has no idea how to proceed because he's not the book guy and Artie didn't give him any instructions. And like Micah knows how to perform research and she's going to go do her thing. But Pete is like, well, I need instructions. And so he calls back. He says he's looking for Claudia, but I don't know. I think he's just kind of looking for anyone and perhaps actually Lena is who he wanted. What do you think? Okay, I had a different reading of it entirely. Okay. I think that he was like, I'm not going to be as good at research as Micah. There is no point in me helping. (laughs) But that's not how his brain works anyway. So he's like, well, what skills do I have? I'm a people person. I'm good at figuring out people. So I think he called the warehouse looking for Claudia because, A, she is very good with technology. So if he says something, she can find whatever it is faster. But also, it's clear to everyone almost instantly that Claudia just gets Artie, man. Yes. And I think his approach was, I need to find out what people who know Artie's brain really well think Artie would be doing right now. So when he finds out that Claudia's not there, by the way, my headcanon is that she is going with Josh to help him settle in in CERN. Oh, um, I love it! Uh, because he's she's just not there right now. Uh, I have no proof of this, but I just thought I'd share with all of you that that's what I think is happening. Lena is like, no, sorry, she's not here right now. He goes, oh, well, I... I I guess you'll do, which she's like, oh, thanks. But I think that he was actually thinking, well, no, you've also known Artie for a long time and you know him very well. So yeah, this will work. I can, I can use this because his questions aren't, can you help me figure this out? It was, if Artie was standing next to you looking for this, what would he be doing? That's an awesome read. I think mine is so different, but both are good. Yours might be better, but, but either way, Lena provides him her guide to find the sword, which is not to track all the way from, you know, the Edo period, but rather to track the sword right now by looking up collectors and people who might be interested in that period today. And they find this very helpful. And he's like, one point for Latimer. And then she, just a small good moment between them, she throws a crumpled up piece of paper at him and he says, thanks. (laughs) so meanwhile Artie shows up to the electronics store and he discovers the lack of body of eric kluger the grenade he was dusted he was dusted it's it's very sad he's got clothing left behind but just dust kind of where the body would be Artie is like you should have kept your promises and he's clearly uh rattled by this and so he calls Pete and Micah to see if they've made any progress. And that's where Micah reveals that they have found the Suba, which is currently at the Secret Service. 
because a curator who worked at the Wilson Peace Museum had made the connection that this suba, which was given in the 1920s to the Americans hoping for peace. A symbol of peace, yeah. Yeah, is now um, supposed to be reunited with the Hanjo Masamune. Artie thinks, and is clearly correct, I think we all agree with Artie on this, that the sword and the suba being in D.C. at the same time is too much of a coincidence. Yes. And there's a really funny line about how they were supposed to give the things back in this ceremony. Um, And Pete just says, but freaky explosions tend to put the kibosh on ceremony. (laughs) And so I just want to do something really brief and kind of funny, which is a random word tangent. Because (laughs) I thought this might be a Yiddish word and I didn't want to look stupid in front of Jillian. So I Googled (laughs) it and it's not a Yiddish word. And in fact, is really, really interesting. So the word kibosh, and it's always used as like put a kibosh on, has mysterious origins that no one really understands. So it may sound Yiddish, but there are no like Yiddish source words that make sense for this. So that's not really plausible. Um, Some people have speculated that it's Celtic um, or Irish, but there aren't good sources or words like using it in that way either. So all we do know is that this word was first used by Charles Dickens in Sketches by Bose in 1836, and it wasn't ever really popular until the mid-1900s, and then all of a sudden people started using it really colloquially. Now the only notable exception, and the reason that I mention this at all, is that the Oxford English Dictionary, My Best Friend, mentions a very important use of the word before the 1900s, which was in 1896 by one H.G. Wells in a comedy (laughs) novel about bicycling called The Wheels of Chance. Um, I have not read The Wheels of Chance, but H.G. Wells wrote so much stuff that like no one really reads because they only read his kind of big science fiction pieces. So Um, Someone look it up and tell me if it's actually a funny comedy novel about a bike or or cycling holiday, as they say. And yeah, just a really fun random word corner about a kibosh, which just means like to stop something from happening, to put a kibosh on something. Yes. So in that conversation with Artie, Pete and Micah reveal that they are outside the Secret Service building right now, ready to act. They want to go in and warn Dickinson. And Artie says absolutely not you may not do that uh they will put him and the secret service in danger and at that point even pete is starting to become a bit annoyed by Artie's choices because he doesn't want Artie to use his friends and former co-workers as bait and obviously micah doesn't either yeah and i think that's super valid because they realize what Artie is doing and it upsets them rightfully so yeah and Artie shuts them down and then gets distracted which annoys them more because this is obviously something that's incredibly important to them these are people's lives these are people they know so their whole thing is we are willing to put everything on the line to protect other people and you're telling us to do the opposite of that and put them in harm's way for our own benefit that does not gel at all with what we do um But when Artie gets distracted, he gets distracted by what... I didn't pause to read it, but they looked like antacid tablets. 
chewable tablet Mentos. Yeah, or it looks thing. like a roll of quarters. Yeah, I they were definitely tablets, but he sees them and just goes, James. Yeah, he finds it and he murmurs the name, and then he hangs up on Pete and Micah, who are rightfully upset. Yeah, they're really pissed, and Micah is reaching her maximum capacity, but I think it's more alarming to see even Pete alarmed, because I think Micah is always visibly calculating risk and calculating danger and so she has been doing this the whole episode and i think she's always on some level changing that barometer whereas p is more like an on-off switch like do need to be worried about this do not need to be worried about this and his switch went on from there we go to the secret service office where mr ogawa appears and tells Dickinson that his agents are compromised. So Ogawa has a background check on Arthur Nielsen, which reveals when he flips it open that Artie was suspected of espionage, which is just like the worst crime for an American like Secret Service government protection job. Um, so Mr. Ogawa also knows that Pete, Micah, and Artie returned to the embassy for that stakeout that we saw, which I think is important because obviously they're good at stakeouts, but it's a deserted parking lot and they're right there. So even if they whammied the security people, like before they did the whammy, they, they probably noticed a car was there. It's possible they could have gotten seen. So Mr. Ogawa knows that they didn't, in fact, leave D.C. That's something that Dickinson says, well, I'm really sorry to hear that. And then Ogawa subtly threatens Dickinson that this could become an international incident and, like, I don't want to make that happen. So it's just not good. Ogawa is putting Dickinson in a hard place because Dickinson believes in Pete and Micah and he knows they're good people but the file shows what it shows. Yeah, it's not their fault if they're taking orders from someone who essentially Dickinson believes has been compromised. So they are being put in danger by doing their jobs and doing what their boss tells them to do in Dickinson's eyes. And this makes him so upset that he angrily throws a half-eaten bagel at the door. (laughs) Yeah, he did a very good job acting. Um, I did want to say one thing, though, that I think will be very important for future episodes. It is extraordinarily suspicious to me that Ogawa knew it was Pete and Micah in the parking lot because he was mesmerized. Could be. I like that. Um, So right as the half-eaten bagel hits the door, an unnamed agent in a trench coat shows Dickinson that he now has the Suba and that he and another agent, they're on the way to the Wilson Museum to return the Suba to where it belongs. So very, very briefly, we get a quick cut of Artie on the phone with someone asking uh, for a meeting as soon as possible. We get very little information, but we get some important information. Whoever he's talking to, He's apologetic, too. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. He goes, yeah, I know, it's me, it's Artie, which is the other thing. It's He introduced himself as Artie, not Arthur Nielsen, so this isn't necessarily a professional contact. This is someone he knows on his first nickname basis, which I think is interesting. 
Thank you. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that. Um, but yeah. Then we go back to the museum and we get the best shot of Pete <laughs> and Micah lurking in the bushes. And a really cute little boy walks by just at their eye level and like waves at them in the bushes. And Pete's like, keep going, like, don't draw attention to us. And I just love everything about that. Yes, and I know you're going to talk about some pop culture references that happen soon, but just following the Micah storyline, this is where she articulates her feelings very well to Pete, which I love because they don't have time for, like, a full heart-to-heart like they might normally do. She is finally able to just say what she thinks, which is Artie keeps all of us in the dark, and he's making us do it to these people too, to the people who we used to work with. And that's not fair. He likes to keep people in the dark, but that's not how this should work. Because for all we know, he could be using us as decoys too. Yes. And she says, information is important because it's what keeps you alive. And Artie doesn't act like it's a priority to be kept alive. For, I mean, for them to be kept alive, which really bothers her. She doesn't feel that she's disposable. She's self-sacrificing, but she's not disposable. Yes, and that's exactly what she's saying. She's like, to him, we're just, and she kind of trails off. And that's when Pete chimes in and says, red shirts. I think our listeners of the podcast will know this reference, but we talked about Star Trek last week, and here's Star Trek again. We're going to talk about Star Trek a lot in this podcast, because there's a lot of Star Trek that happens in this show, but continue. I think something so interesting about the Sci-Fi Network was that when they created original content, um of which Warehouse 13 was some of the most successful early original content, a part of the whole rebranding was like, people only know us as the place to watch Star Trek reruns, but we're so much more than that. And yet, they're not saying we're not the place for your Star Trek reruns. They're saying, like, we also have original content. So they're not, like, losing those people who love coming to the Sci-Fi Channel for the Star Trek reruns. So... They make lots of references. This is another one, um, a specifically original series reference of um, when I was a kid and we used to record uh, on our VCR episodes of Star Trek, the original (laughs) series from the Sci-Fi Channel. uh, My sister and my brother and I would be like, oh, yes, they brought down some dudes to die anytime someone came with a red shirt on. And that's just what we know as the symbol that was accurate of well, the unimportant cast members of Star Trek who only appear to like die on a planet mission, you know, away mission, they wear a red shirt. And so I think future franchises of Star Trek tried to do a little better than just putting the random actors who are going to die in a red shirt. But anyways, the amazing thing about this is that Pete uh, doesn't agree. He's like, no, I don't think that's what that's what we are well when he says red shirts micah says yeah like agreeing i think that's an important that is that is important and then he's like no but but i don't think that's true i know that's how you feel but that's not what i think Artie is doing and then he like pauses and is like although that's so cool that you knew what i meant i loved that whole interaction because the way that i read it was he basically was like one for you one for me like for you you'll go first This isn't what's happening. I'm going to assuage your fears. It's all going to be okay. Now for me, I just need you to know this was really excellent. I really appreciated this. Thank you so much. (laughs) And you know what I love about this is that Pete, if we think back to the Redicus episode, um, Claudia, 
made fun of Micah for being a nerd and was like, well, I went to the prom and you were reading books. But the thing is, like, there are so many ways to be nerdy. And we know that Pete is, like, a Star Trek sort of spy movie, James Bond. Like, he likes these things that people are often very nerdy about, even though he is not nerdy in other ways. And I think that's really important to his character and his complexity. Like, he's not just, as he said in our interview, like, a handsome dum-dum. I agree. And I also think it puts into context the way that he was poking fun at her. Mm -hmm. Because he's not at all ashamed of his nerdiness, but he sees that Micah likes to hide parts of herself. She likes to project an image, and he's like, I see the other parts of you. You know I do. So he pokes fun at them to let her know that he sees her and even the parts that she might not want to share, but he still loves all of it, you know? Yeah, and it takes one to know one. Like, when he sees, yeah. when he sees her doing a nerdy thing, he's like, well, I know that that's nerdy, you know? Yeah. So they, they have a great friendship that we love. And um, right after that, that awesome um, discussion, we see a scary masked dude walk into the museum and Pete and Micah rush in to go after him. So they come into the museum just as this bad guy is zapping the guards with Jillian, an orange Tesla. I know! Obviously, orange color theory is coming through. But that screamed like <coughs> Harry Potter. Star really, it screamed Star Wars to me. Oh, it's both, with, like, yeah, sure. With lightsabers, because it's like, oh, yeah, the good guy has this color lightsaber and the bad guy has this color lightsaber. It was sort of the same thing, but with Teslas. It is that, and then what I was thinking is that they both attempt, so they see the bad guy, Tesla, a guard, and then they turn their purple Tesla on him, and so it's the battle of, like, the purple stream of light and the orange stream of light. You said, yes, like, Star Wars, but also, like, the Harry Potter 7 Part 2, like Voldemort and Harry with their wands magic going at each other from a distance. It was first seen at the end of Book 4, Goblet of Fire. Sorry. What? Was it? Yeah, because their wands connected. Priori Incantatum is the thing for our listeners to know. Oh, you're right. I just found another video of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire that is the same effect. So That's it happens. What I was thinking. It happens more than once in the movies. Yeah. Okay. So this double Tesla blast shoots Pete and Micah backwards, but they jump back. They want to go on a chase to get this bad guy. And just a totally random note: the Wilson Museum is definitely a house. Because um, they're just, like, running through a very nice house. And I'm not saying that's not plausible. Like, there are, it, it could have been his historic home that was then made into a museum. Oh, I absolutely believe that. Just a funny scene of them running around. And we think that the guy got away because Pete goes after him and he runs outside. But then Micah reveals that she got the Suba and she has it in this nice box but just in time um, for the Secret Service agent, the guy in the trench coat from earlier, as well as his partner, um, to come in and catch them basically looking red-handed as if they had been the ones stealing the artifact. And they were basically say, why did you shoot us? And Pete says, we didn't shoot you. That was 
And then he tries to explain that Tesla's erased your short-term memory, which I cannot remember if that was the first time we get that information, but we do get that information here. Um, but then he realizes that if it erased their short-term memory, then they also would remember. So he's like, nah, uh, mm, mm, never mind. <laughs> yeah, Micah looks at him being like, they're not going to believe us, Pete. And yeah, the act ends. So we go to commercial and then we come back. And so we're at the top of Act 4, and we're in the museum kitchen. So the summary I wrote down was, Secret Service, what the f***? (laughs) (laughs) Pete, no, we're still Secret Service. Micah, we're an archival department. Yes, and then the Secret Service um, mocks them by going, Whoa, what, so you're filing clerks that protect us from invisible bad guys? And Pete and Micah are just like, yeah, that's right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> i so love that so much a perfect summary and luckily dickinson swoops in angrily but on the way out the other secret service agents are so bad at being menacing <laughs> they are <laughs> one of them leans in really like with his most menacing thing is like watch out for paper cuts they take days to heal I know, and like, I think that that guy was being 100% serious and just failed at being menacing. I think so too. I think that we're supposed to get the idea that these Secret Service guys think they're the head honchos when really, like, Pete and Micah are so much more, like, security clearance is so much higher, so much more successful. It just appears like they're crazy, but... But those guys know nothing. Yes. Um, So Dickinson swoops in and scolds them a lot. And Dickinson is as upset with the both of them as Micah is with Artie. And Micah sees that because all he's doing is asking for information. And all Micah wants to do is give him that information. And at this point, she doesn't see the harm in revealing what information they have, at least as relates to the artifact. Like, someone is after this sword, we should be able to tell them that, and he can't. And Dickinson's feeling a bit betrayed, but he does say that he understands. Like, this is something that he valued in them when they worked for him, was their loyalty. But then he shares the file with them he hands it to Micah and not Pete because I think he knows that Micah is the one who's gonna look at it and Pete would angrily like throw it away but he's like if you respect me at all if you ever valued me as a boss fine don't tell me but look at this because I'm trying to protect you I actually care and have your best interests at heart and I think Micah's having a bit of a crisis here because this is a person who's not her boss who's in a job that she doesn't identify with anymore, but who she has a bit more respect for right now than Artie. I think her respect for Artie is dwindling the more that he dismisses her. And it's also just important that um, Dickinson says this intel checks out. Like, he checked the security codes or whatever it is. I don't know anything about this, but he validated this information before giving it to them. So he's not trying to trick them. He's not... And they, they believe this, they know this, uh, but they have to accept this information as fact. Because they can always trust Dickinson. He has never given them any reason to believe that he isn't trustworthy. And that's not how they feel about their own boss right now, which is really hard. Yeah. So time passes and we get to see Dickinson in his office 
putting the Suba in a secret vault. And Micah did tell him that, like, it's really dangerous. You don't know how dangerous this is that you're dealing with. And I like the little bit of trust that Dickinson shows when he, like, calls for extra security. He's like, I need a little extra security just for 72 hours. And it's like, he does believe that Pete and Micah are trying to help, even though he can't get what they're trying to tell him. And then that's kind of what we have for now before we cut to Artie in a bar with an unknown, kind of like, unknown, attractive older woman. He's with a peer in age who he clearly has some kind of history with. Um, and he's trying to get info about presumably James. And the woman is annoyed with what she calls Artie's talking in riddles, which is essentially the same thing that Micah and Peter are annoyed with right now. Yeah. He's always a few steps ahead, but not willing to back up, which, you know, I think a lot of people have encountered people like that. Someone who is just, you need them to slow down. She claims she hasn't seen or heard from this person called James in 15 years, and we learn that her name is Carol. Carol accuses Artie of making things intolerable quote, for all of us. And this suggests that there's a much bigger backstory in place. We get the idea specifically that there was a love triangle between Carol, James, and Artie. Uh, Artie says, I'm not the one who drove him away, which is what leads her to say, you made things intolerable for all of us. Um, And she says, basically, did you just come here to rub it in and say that I chose the wrong guy? Artie seems hurt, but he doesn't really want to let her know, and he changes the subject away from himself, and he says, if you're harboring him in any way, you are in danger, and she just storms out, and when she leaves, we see Mrs. Frederick! Oh, so I love this because... When Artie called and was like, I need to see you, it's really important, I had thought he's calling Mrs. Frederick, but I think now we understand he was calling Carol, and Mrs. Frederick is like, you know, an onlooker of this problem that's unfolding between Artie and Pete and Micah, and she shows up and she's like, no, 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 Artie, why are you bothering this poor woman and stirring up old wounds when your team is falling apart and... You know, you're pitying yourself while being obsessed with the idea that McPherson is back. And he says, this is McPherson. And she's really dismissive of that. And he shows her the antacid tablets. And something crosses her face as if to say, this is alarming. But I am not willing to let you take the lead on this. I th- I don't think that she necessarily doesn't believe him outright. But I do think that she's like, this doesn't rise to the level of you needing to come here. This is something you could have communicated and then we could keep an eye on kind of thing. Um, but then she says something really interesting. She says, we've seen you like this before. This isn't something that's fully followed up on ever in the series. So I feel comfortable putting my theory out now that whatever this was that happened before, this is what Artie was referring to in the previous episode of um, 1987. (laughs) Yes. He says, okay, but what if I'm right? Implying if I'm right, then this level of anxiety that I am experiencing and that I am 
obsessing about is warranted. Mm-hmm. And she considers it, and she doesn't say yes or no, but she just says, go home, Artie. Back with Micah and Pete, they're reading what we see as an arrest warrant that includes a picture of a really baby-faced young Artie. And I love this picture. I really hope it's a real old photo oh, I'm of sure Saul Rubinick because it looks it definitely perfect. Is. And this is really important timing because as Micah begins to, to uh, uncover what he was accused of, he calls and says, like, new plan, you guys stay there, I'm going to take it from here. And that just continues to validate the possibility that he's gone off script and he's a bad guy and he's, like, a traitor. And so Artie does sense that something is wrong. He's like, is everything okay or something on, on those lines? And Micah just says they're fine. And then he's like, all right, all right. And he he doesn't deal with it. And he doesn't stay to talk to them and, like, pay attention to his agents and he just hangs up and we see Pete and Micah in that hotel room like kind of at least Micah being convinced that this is really bad. Micah's convinced Pete is distraught. Yeah. Because he is a person who was like okay obviously your clearance was legit enough to get us away from Dickinson. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my life on the line for this. He's aware that the implosion grenades could go off at any moment. He's made more peace with his mortality, like we talked about earlier, but he was not prepared for that trust to be abused in such a manner. And he's just like, I refute, like, I don't believe it. That's not Artie. But Micah's like, no, it's true. She says his real name wasn't even Arthur Nielsen, it was Arthur Weisfeld. He was a cryptographer for the NSA, and he was turned, and he sold secrets to the Russians, which is insane. And so Micah begins reading through this history as a montage plays of Artie getting really scary. And Artie creeps into the Secret Service office, he does this crazy debilitate move where he like punches this guard in the gullet and like immediately takes him out which we've never seen like we've seen Artie use the tesla and we know that he it used to be more of a field agent probably when he was younger than he is now as more of a warehouse like artifact guy but he's powering through that office and showing up to steal the item Luckily, another guard comes through just in time to report the security breach, and Dickinson was only in the parking lot. He had just barely left, which also shows us how desperate Artie is. Like, the second that Dickinson is gone, Artie tries to move in, and it's really soon. He gets caught. He's opening the vault and begins taking the Suba when Dickinson and another officer open the door, their guns drawn and they're like you're under arrest and Artie thinks that he that it's about the suba he doesn't have any idea that any of this other stuff is happening and he's like i'm really sorry i need to take this he's really hoping that because of his previous interaction with dickinson that dickinson will be like okay yeah but then dickinson says oh no not for this you're under arrest for treason technically a different crime than espionage so 
expected there. <laughs> I but... don't know that. Um, but we do get a commercial black. The only other thing I want to say is it didn't feel right, but in that scene in the hotel, Micah is wearing a vest and a men's shirt, and she looks extra good, so that's take two of Micah being fashionable. Well done. Uh, so yes, that's the commercial black, and we are really worried for Artie. Yes, so then when we get back to Act 5, they're in an interview room in the Secret Service headquarters, and Micah has one foot out the door. She's not wanting to leave, but she her level of care for Artie has dropped a bit because she's really upset with him. Um, Pete is still giving him a chance. He wants Artie to make this make sense, and he goes, tell me that this isn't true, because we know it's not true. And Artie just goes, can't tell you that it's true. Whew. And, yeah, they're not on the same page at all for the rest of this interaction. Um, Pete and Micah are like, how can we help you get out of this? And Artie is saying, no, 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 no. Don't, don't worry about me. Mrs. Frederick has fixed this before. This is all a distraction. Please continue to go after the sword. With hindsight, we can see that Artie is totally right. This is, there is no reason for them to be worried about him right now. Um, this is something that they don't have an ability to fix. Mrs. Frederick does and will. So they just need to do their jobs. But he's not communicating how or why or what's happening. So he just seems really frantic and really unhinged, which he's actually not. He's very focused. He's just a very poor communicator. But he realizes something as he's ranting to himself, which is... Mrs. Frederick fixed this. And when Mrs. Frederick fixes something, it shouldn't be messed with. It shouldn't have the ability to be messed with. So whoever unfixed it, as he says, is probably this James person who had knowledge of his past. Yes. But he doesn't even tell them that James is someone to be worried about. He says whoever unfixed it is who has the sword. He's still not sharing all of the information. But we do get the idea that their time is running out because Dickinson has, like, given them this favor by even letting them see Artie at all, Mm -hmm. um, which is a huge deal because of Mm -hmm. Dickinson's trust in Pete and Micah. And so as the time is running out, Artie reveals, like, you need to find out who gave Dickinson my file. um, And, you know, eventually this process is going to lead you to McPherson. And they're like, who? You haven't communicated who this is. That's it, though. It's like, mm-hmm. they they need to know, but all he can get out before Dickinson comes is the last name, which is at least more helpful than James. And now they at least have something to go off of. Um, as Pete and Micah get pulled away from Artie, and Dickinson begins trying to help and advise them and saying, like, self-preservation time, save your careers, go back home, Um, these agents are going to get you out of here, and, like, just transfer out before this warehouse thing ruins you. And you can tell that he is coming from a genuine place when he says this. Like, he believes that the charges against Artie are real and that Pete and Micah, these amazing agents, are at risk of, like, disgracing their entire careers. And then one important thing happens and one hilarious thing happens. All right. So the important thing that happens is Pete and Micah spot Ogawa and are like, the heck is he doing here? Why yeah. is, why would he be here for this? And Dickinson's, oh, yeah, Japan wants the Suba back. 
And so that's what's happening, and that's fine. And Micah says, who gave you this file? Because she is, you know, trying to figure out if Artie is saying true things still. Yeah. And Dickinson basically says, now that one I'm keeping to myself. And I think he might have shared that with her if there wasn't this break in trust between them. You know, but now he's not sharing. And I think Mike respects that because if he can't trust her and the people that she works with, he can't give her information, which is the exact kind of situation she was hoping to avoid. Um, but then the hilarious thing happens is he turns to the two agents who threatened about paper cuts and is like, until someone tells me otherwise, I still outrank you, Pete and Micah. So these guys are going to put you on a plane and make sure you freaking leave. And then he turns to the agents and goes, don't rule out shooting them if necessary, which I think is great. <laughs> it's also funny because he calls them like your two favorite people or something like that. Yeah. Like there's been this <laughs> funny conflict between them. The other thing that I would note about Dickinson not revealing the source is that Ogawa is in the room. So I think it's also possible that Dickinson might have been more open if the guy who gave them the info wasn't standing right there. Because what happens next is that Pete and Micah walk out and something comes over Pete. We might think it's a vibe, but what it actually is, is that his kind of memory of the implosion event is forming back in his mind. And when he sees Mr. Ogawa turn around and look at Dickinson he realizes that that was the person that he saw in the implosion and Ogawa is the guy. So that's huge. And he says this to Micah. Micah rolls back in her brain, just like we said earlier in this episode, where she replays the interaction that just happened, where Dickinson is like, I can't tell you who did this. And then he looks over his shoulder and he looks at Ogawa and it's clearly Micah's observation and Secret Service training that when people are not like lying, but when, when people are being deceptive, they exhibit certain behaviors. And this is one, like he looks to the person who gave him the info, even as he says, I'm not going to tell you as if maybe he, yeah, he doesn't want to say it because Ogawa is there or he wants to look for Ogawa's approval and Ogawa doesn't give it something like that. And this verifies what Pete has said, Micah agrees, but the two sort of bumbling Secret Service agents are like, come on guys, let's get out of here, um, before they initially are able to act on it. And then something really great happens, and I know you'll have something to say about it, but I just want to explain in full what happens first, because it's all great. So we're back in that interview room, and a few lower level Secret Service agents have been tasked to guard Artie, and <laughs> Artie and one of these guards are having a stare-off, <laughs> and Artie just goes, are you bored? And the agent goes, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was great. Um, and then at that exact moment, someone who an observant person will recognize as Mrs. Frederick's bodyguard um, arrives with a piece of paper. Artie knows exactly what it is. He knows whatever has been unfixed has been refixed. And the guard just looks at the note and says, who's Mrs. Frederick? Which, Which is, is hilarious, yeah. And Artie says, 
I'd tell you, but he'd have to kill you and points to the bodyguard. Yes, so I was super excited about this. We have seen this actor um, or this bodyguard character before. He was earlier in this episode. I think we've seen him in another episode. And I would just like to do something extra special, which is a mini actor spotlight. Because he is not, you know, a famous actor, but he is an interesting person, and I think we should highlight him in this episode. And he is recurring. He's always Mrs. Frederick's bodyguard. Yes. Which I think is important. They they keep him on. So this actor is, um, well, he's credited in this episode as the bodyguard, and I don't know if he gets a name later, but um, his actor, the actor's name is Jung Yul Kim, and he is a Korean-Canadian actor who was born in Seoul, South Korea. More recently, he played roles in RoboCop from 2014 and Pacific Rim from 2013. And he was also in small roles for other films, including Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Now, his physical presence, I think, is the most memorable part about him. And he was a former football player, by which I mean like American football um, football player in Canada, originally for the University of Toronto, as well as he played professional football in Canada for six years. <laughs> so, not surprisingly, he is six foot four, and as a football player, his stats were listed at 250 pounds, so he is the best bodyguard. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, as an actor, I don't think he's in the same giant form as a football player, but he's still... But I bet he can still take a hit. A huge and, like, imposing figure. (laughs) So he um, is also skilled in Taekwondo and Hapkido, which I think is just kind of a great coincidence for Pete's earlier love of sort of martial arts and samurai. And then, as a bonus... He has also acted in three Warner Brothers Kung Fu movies. So, again, sort of linked with Pete's playful approach to this sort of Asian filmography rather than the more realistic and difficult history that we deal with with the artifact. So that's Jung Yul Kim, and I am very excited to have his name and sort of spotlight recognized in this episode. Yes. That's awesome. So that's that, and he uh, gets gets Artie out of there, and we go back to Pete and Micah. Yes, who are in the back of a Secret Service van driven by, I mean, essentially the new them. Yeah. The, the people who replaced them. And the guys up front are just having a normal conversation the way partners would. And in the back, Pete and Micah are having this really funny gesture-based conversation oh where Micah my gosh. is clearly saying like come on let's let's shoot him with a tesla and pete is like no man we're not gonna do that i can't do that to people who are technically like on our team like we're all secret service agents i can't just shoot our own guys and Micah's like fine i'll do it and takes the gun the tesla from him and then like she closes her eyes and we don't see her shoot them, but we see a flash inside the car. And then we see the car slowly roll into a <laughs> newspaper kiosk, which is the second time we've seen one of those overturned. It reminds me of um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer when Spike keeps knocking over the Sunnydale sign on his way <laughs> in and out. Um, because the first time we saw one of those 
roadside newspaper kiosks knocked over was in magnetism. 103 Magnetism, yeah. Um, when <laughs> the <laughs> lady <laughs> destroyed it. Um, so that was pretty funny. Outside of the Secret Service building, a car awaits Artie, and Mrs. Frederick is in it. And Artie immediately starts with the apologies, not recanting that his idea was wrong, but he's like, I know, I rushed in too fast, I didn't think clearly, I left without my bag, which is important because his bag is very important. He starts getting all of this out, and Mrs. Frederick cuts him off and is like, no, 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 you were right. This is McPherson. Um, and then she says, I'm sorry for doubting you, which just, I don't think she's used to apologizing to people. I think she's used to being correct. I'm sure she's used to being correct. And we do know Artie has this personality to be really finicky and obsessive. So, like, I'm sure she usually is right about him overblowing things. Yeah. And now mrs frederick says now it's up to you to stop him and artie's like okay great and like leaves the car and she just like picks up the bag and closes her eyes and holds it and after like a beat he comes back takes the bag and is like yeah i forgot thank you i forgot <laughs> um and he leaves and then we're out and then we're back for act six and we're in an airplane hangar with ogawa who gives the mystery man dressed in dark clothes with gloves and stuff the sword and the suba and the man puts we sort of see a flash of his face but not enough yet to really get a good view of him he takes off like the bottom part of the hilt puts the suba on and then slips the hilt back on and um he raises the sword like in front of his face and disappears just totally goes invisible and at that moment Artie enters to see Mr. Ogawa holding the Suba box. And he says, oh, Mr. Ogawa, when does he get here? And just, just as he says that, we hear a motion and we see Mr. Ogawa's head fall off. It has been sliced off his body. It's really scary when that it's happens. It's real, real scary. And Artie just says, oh God, it works. Oh, which works on two levels because now we have confirmation that the bearer of the sword is invisible and also like the sword is still a sword. That's the worst part is that it's not just a thing that makes you invisible. It's a the sharpest sword in the world, a weapon that makes you invisible. And that's a double scary thing. And it makes itself invisible too because I think a lot of times you see in invisibility in science fiction and fantasy, someone will pick something up and you can still see the thing they're holding. So they have to fight sort of hand to hand or be sneaky. But you actually get to hold your weapon and have it on your person, which is also terrifying. Which is just a way to absolutely murder people because you're not engaging in a fair, you know, fight when you're invisible. You're just gonna cut off this guy's head as we saw. Um, so from there, a British accent speaks out of thin air, saying it's good to see Artie after all these years. And Artie's like, I know you changed a lot, but killing people, like, that's a lot. And, uh, this voice that we understand is James McPherson 
reveals that he has been observing Latimer and Baring. Which is horrifying, and Artie gets really upset, which reveals what we needed to hear, which we knew was true, but we needed it reaffirmed, that he cares very deeply about Pete and Micah, and he would be heartbroken if something happened to them. And But whatever he says gets McPherson's, I don't know, adrenaline up enough that he reveals himself a bit to Artie. I think Rue McPherson is a is a bad guy who's kind of playing with Artie. He's toying with him by appearing briefly and then disappearing again. Yes, but we do get to see his face. He's no longer this mysterious man in all darkness or invisibility. And we see the face of my actor spotlight. Mr. Roger Reese, who is or was, I should say, a fantastic actor with an incredibly long career. He is literally a star of the big screen, the small screen, and the stage. I mean, where to start? He's probably best known for some of his work on... um, He was in The Prestige in 2006, which was a very big film. Uh, He was in The Christmas Carol, or sorry, A Christmas Carol as Fred Hollywell, Um, both of the film and TV versions. What appears to be his longest-running role was as the character of Robin Colcord on television's Cheers from 1989 to 1993. Uh, He has starred on the stage in Waiting for Godot, A Comedy of Errors, uh, Three Sisters. Uh, He's been in Cymbeline. He is a very, very accomplished actor who sadly passed away in 2015 of cancer. Uh, He was with his partner, Rick Elise. I'll spell it. E-L-I-C-E. Elise, Ellis. I don't know how to pronounce it. But he was with his partner for 33 years, and they were married. Uh, His partner is a Tony Award winner who wrote Jersey Boys, Uh, as well as a lot of other things. And I instantly recognized him, but couldn't place exactly where I'd seen him because he's such a powerful character actor that we've all seen in a million things. He was also in The West Wing uh, as Lord John Marbury. Oh, that's where I've seen him! Yeah. he's He's the kind of actor that so easily became his characters that you didn't really associate them with the actor he just inhabited the form of the character he was very skilled and we are so pleased that we were able to see him on this series yes he is so perfect for this role of mcpherson um his like whole acting with his whole body which i talked with jill about is like such a sign of a theater actor that his presence just embodies that character and in this episode He scares us exactly the way that this character is supposed to scare us. Yeah. He does a very good job of being menacing. That leads us to, you know, his reveal. And we see him coming just in time for the chop. He's coming after Artie and Artie has made him mad. And um, so he stabs Artie through the shoulder area. And this to me has a really like scary callback to earlier when Pete was playing with the fake sword 
because Pete was like doing that thing that little kids do where you pretend to stab under your armpit to like act out a scary movie sword scene. And now um, Artie has actually gotten stabbed in the shoulder. Well, James McPherson says something that makes something that Artie says later believable. McPherson stabs Artie, who screams because he just got stabbed, and leans in and goes, you always hurt the one you love. Which Uh. hints that there was a very good relationship. And, I mean, we have seen McPherson has no problem killing anyone who gets in his way. But he didn't kill Artie. He cared enough about him still in some way. Artie later says when Pete and Micah find him, because that's what happens, um, well, he implies that he got McPherson to stab him intentionally because it was the only way he could think of to make sure that he could really maintain possession of the sword. It's easy to maintain if it is, you know, in you. Well, and that's the the scariest, worst part for me is that Saul Rubinek acts this scene spectacularly um, obviously, the scary conversation between them is perfect, but also when he gets stabbed, it's it's in the smallness of, like, this shriek of pain that's so convincing. Um, and then he holds on to the sword, like, keeping it in his shoulder because this is his plan to keep McPherson from taking it. And you see them struggle, like... Artie is holding the sword in his body and, like, holding onto a sword. And as Pete and Micah arrive, McPherson has to run away. And so, yeah, Artie's goal is accomplished to get the sword. But this was a horrible sacrifice he just made to get it. Yeah, which is scary and awful, but I think is... Somewhat, <laughs> hi Bella. That um, on me. Yeah, hi, but baby. it is one of the more um, self-sacrificing things that we've seen Artie do, which I don't think that I want to say that I like that it happened, but I do like that we see that he's willing to make the same level of sacrifice that Pete and Micah are willing to make, and just as they're sort of getting it together they see an implosion grenade roll toward them and they run they just run out of the hangar and it implodes and almost pulls them in but can i rewind because the one thing that we haven't mentioned before the implosion grenade is that pete and micah arrive and Artie wants them to take the sword out and jillian you've given us this advice before what do you do when you are impaled Never remove it. You wait until you go to the hospital to have it removed. I understand that it's a giant, unwieldy sword. And Artie's argument is like, it's the sharpest sword ever made. Like, it's not like some of the, uh, like, if you get impaled with a tree or something and you're going to hurt way more taking it out. It's not the same as that. And, And it's a shoulder wound that we assume is not deadly. But, like, never do that, you guys. Never do that. I, yeah. I mean, always, I will always validate, never take that out. I will say, in his defense, I I am unaware of any major artery there, or any major organ there. But you just never know. Yeah. You know? Just, like, be, just be careful, y'all. And also, try not to get impaled. Yeah. Just <laughs> while we're giving out advice. <laughs> 
And while we're giving out advice, don't hitchhike. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> throw that out there. <laughs> just, just, woo. So, anyways, then you are right, Jillian. There is an implosion grenade rolling towards them, and this is what's so impressive. And again, I know it's a shoulder wound, but they get Artie up and they run for their lives out of that hangar and escape just in time to not, you know, get hit by the implosion grenade. We see them get sucked towards the, the hangar and narrowly escape. Yeah. Then we are back in the warehouse with P and Micah and Lena, and Lena is clearly seeing the distress in the air, and she goes, you know, I wasn't there when everything went down with McPherson, um, and then she refers back to the sword, and I like this because we get more of an idea of what Lena does in the warehouse, um, she says, oh, this feels right in terms of where to put the sword, which I think is, I really wish that we could really delve a lot more into her character than we're able to in this series, because what she does is so interesting. She reads, we talked before about how all of the artifacts are extensions of people and they have emotional signatures and she reads auras. So she reads the auras of the artifacts and knows where to put them so that they won't impact each other. And it goes back to affect theory and it's such an interesting scientific thing to do that probably require, like if it was real and a thing that someone was able to do, that would require a lot of skill, which I find fascinating. Um, and I also just want to shout out to one of our forum users whose, like, signature is, like, can I just marry Lena and live in the B&B? Um, <laughs> and she has all of those qualities, right? She's this amazing human person, but also this really powerfully skilled contributor. Yeah, and I just, I guess I really want to encourage our listeners to really think about Lena and what she does, because with everyone else on the show we can really clearly see what they do we see pete and micah finding and bagging and snagging and tagging artifacts we see Artie managing the team we see claudia doing stuff on computers we see all of it but we don't always see what lena does but i want you to imagine an endless warehouse of materials that are all potentially that all have the potential to have deadly interactions with each other. And your job is to make sure that you place everything in a way that they don't react. That's a, a huge responsibility. And I just want to really appreciate Lena as a character for doing that. Because I don't think the show necessarily always emphasizes it to its fullest degree. And so they lock the sword up. And that's when Pete reveals that... McPherson's plan was to mess up the team, to get in and, and reveal what Artie's past was in order to throw them off. And at that moment, it is when Joanne Kelly just steals the rest of the scene. Yes, she does. She goes, well, it worked. I don't know how to work with him right now. And Lena immediately just, her goal in life always is to take all of the negative energy and just do what needs to be done so that it's not floating around everywhere. And she starts saying, you have to understand, Artie's lost a lot of people. He shuts people out as a defense mechanism. And Micah is not having it. And she's right, though, because Micah is like, 
well, I guess Artie needs to work that out. And that's super important because clearly Artie, what, what Lena is identifying is almost like a psychological thing where he needs a therapeutic way of working out his loss and his suffering and his past. And, you know, Jillian and I love and support therapy and that might be exactly what he needs. And this is what Micah recognizes is that he may need therapy or help with his personal issues, but that doesn't mean it's okay for him to put other people in danger because he hasn't yet gotten that help. And also, Micah has very recently experienced a major loss, and you know what she didn't do? Use it to become more reckless with the lives of the people who she does care about. I mean, you see how fiercely she protects Pete whenever he's in danger because she knows what it is to lose a partner. I don't, I don't think she can fathom Artie's response. I don't think that she can excuse, oh, well, I've lost all these people, so, like, what? You're just okay with losing everybody now? Yeah. Or that's treat... not how her brain works at all. And that's not how anyone's brain should work. And again, I think it's possible that everything Lena is saying is super valid, but they clearly have to work on their relationships. And the smallest detail that I love about Joanne Kelly stealing this scene is that Micah storms away. And there's this tiny effect as we transfer perspectives to the security camera footage showing Artie and Mrs. Frederick watching. And the effect is that she storms past an artifact-looking rocking chair, and it moves, which I think back to the scene where Pete and Micah were arguing in the warehouse and the objects pick up on the energy. Like, Micah's angry, and her anger makes that chair like react as she storms out but very importantly she knows now to leave the warehouse when she feels that way which is a demonstration of what she was just talking about yes because she's like listen i am feeling a way that will obviously negatively affect everyone around me and instead of putting you all in danger because i have these feelings i'm going to leave because that's what responsible adults do it's clear that artie and mrs frederick have seen this whole interaction yes. with Lena and Pete and Micah. And Artie is really dismissive of Micah's sincere emotions. And he doesn't really stop being dismissive of them until later in the next episode. It's He's not moved by her feelings right now, which I think is not his best quality. He needs to be able to better respond and understand these things. And I think he would have gotten there faster if Claudia was still in town. Yeah. But I think that he needed a little more um, because he's like, secret is in their job. They're in the secret service. Their job is to follow my instructions. And Mrs. Frederick just goes, uh, your job's to follow my instructions. So, <laughs> so he gets put in his place. And then that's when they have their interaction where she says, I'm sorry for doubting you. And he goes, we're all human as far as I know. He... He's like, oh, we're all human, haha, <laughs> funny joke. But on the serious side, he also says, you know, McPherson is planning something bigger. Yeah, he says this is the first move. Like, this is, he didn't come out of the woodwork just to steal a sword, I mean. He wants to acquire objects, clearly, that belong in the warehouse, but we don't know why. And then we end the episode in a really interesting kind of quote. Um, Artie says, you know, the Talmud says, 
if someone's coming to kill you, get up early and kill them first. And Mrs. Frederick quotes a piece of the Talmud back to him and says, it also says not to rush into unnecessary danger because a miracle might not save you. It's really apt for this episode of the mistake Artie made that worked out okay. Like, he rushed in too fast. He got stabbed. Um, by a miracle, McPherson can't bring himself to kill Artie. And by a miracle, Pete and Micah arrive in time. Yeah, but there was no guarantee that that wouldn't happen, you know? Um, but I just wanted to validate that those are real Talmudic quotes that I appreciate them getting correct. Will you share with non-familiar listeners about the Talmud? Yes. Okay, so there are a lot of official Jewish texts. Um, Most people just think it's the Torah, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, but the whole set of our Bible stories are part of the Tanakh, which in t- which includes the Torah, and then a set of books called Nevi'im and a set of books called Ketuvim, which are prophets and writings. And then there is there's midrashes and there's Megillah, and then there's the Talmud, which is an ancient set of texts compiled by a group of rabbis of something called the Sanhedrin that look at all of the religious texts and interpret them and analyze them and produce another set of rules based on what they think the Bible is saying. So that's all part of Jewish biblical learning. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I like you had used the metaphor to explain it to me of the Talmud almost being like an ancient Jewish Supreme Court or something. Uh, That's the Sanhedrin. The people who compiled it are like the Jewish Supreme Court. Yeah, and I think that's just a thing that a non-Jewish person might have never heard about. So it's very interesting, uh, and and my only thought as a person who has no idea what the Talmud is was, well, this is very wise advice. It's meant to be. <laughs> I mean, that's what the Talmud is. Yeah, very thoughtful way to close out this episode. And I think it's a good way to close out, too, because our heavy theme was World War II, And um, it's maybe a small gesture, but we've mentioned in the previous episode that Artie is a Jewish character and that Mrs. Frederick is clearly speaking to him in a way that's like culturally relevant for his, I don't know, worldview. And I think that it's really thoughtful. Um, I don't know. I guess you could read it either way that you're invoking Judaism in an episode about World War II is obviously bringing up a lot of really difficult themes. I mean, but but it's part of our history. I mean, it's part, a lot of, and I don't think this is anything that a Jewish person would disagree with. There's a lot of joy and a lot of wonderfulness in Jewish history, but there's also a lot of people wanting to kill us. So I think that... There's a lot of suffering in Jewish history. And so bringing it up and being aware of it isn't something that is unwelcome it's not the only part of our history but we're definitely aware of when it is appropriate and I think it was appropriate here and I really liked that Mrs. Frederick knew enough to engage in that conversation yeah that's the end and it gets us really worried about what McPherson does next Mm -hmm. and how the team is going to hold up against it because they're in shambles right now for sure so uh thank you we'll see you next time agents 
And thank you so much for tuning in a day late. I know this one came out on Wednesday. I've just got to do my best as we always do. So thank you for your continued support and for telling your friends, reading, reviewing, leaving comments, and all of the amazing things you do. Have a great week. Goodbye.